Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Education. I'm Trevor Matea, one of your hosts on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Ira Litt about his book, The Bus Kids, Children's Experiences with Voluntary Desegregation. Ira, welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks for having me, Trevor. Ira, I was wondering if we could begin by just having you tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, Sure, I'd be glad to. Uh, I'm currently a professor at the Stanford Graduate School of Education. I'm also the faculty director of Stanford's elementary teacher education program, uh, referred to as STEP. Uh, Prior to coming to Stanford, I began my professional career as a teacher. I worked first in some preschools for a few years. Uh, Then I was an elementary school teacher in kindergarten, third grade, and fifth grade. Um, came back to Stanford as a graduate student, did my doctoral studies here, worked briefly at Bank Street College in New York, um, longstanding institution, uh, working to prepare teachers and serve principally um, elementary and early childhood educators. And then I came back to Stanford, and that's where I've been ever since. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you came to write The Bus Kids? Um, it's the uh, work I did actually as a graduate student. So, um, uh, it was an outgrowth of my dissertation study I did, uh, when I was a graduate student here at Stanford. So I'm interested how you came to study this topic. Um, so having spent all these years as a teacher, you could have dealt into any number of issues. Um, so, uh, why were you so interested in this, uh, school desegregation effort? Sure. Um, so I think there were a number of motivating factors. Let me share a few. Um, I think kind of more, um, uh, starting a little bit more locally, when I was a classroom teacher, um, I worked in schools similar to the ones that I describe in the book, similar to the ones in Arbor Town. Um, and the schools also had, um, uh, minority students who were participating in a transfer program. And I was always both really committed, but also intrigued in the experience of those students. Um, I was wondering what motivated families to send their kids across town to come to a different school for an educational experience. I was wondering what life was like for those children. I also observed um, a range of features that I thought were challenging and problematic um, and didn't have a lot of access to information about it. Um, why it was designed the way it was, what were the motivating factors, and so on. So I had some really local experience that um, kind of sparked an interest that I then had the time to pursue when I was in graduate studies. Um, I'd also say to, you know, take a little bit of a, of a step back. Um, you can't see me now, but I'm uh, sitting in my office, and I have uh, one of the photographs that I have framed and hanging on the wall of my office is a picture of my mother, um, in her own classroom in the mid-1960s. And she, the picture is of her teaching in one of the first integrated public schools in Memphis, Tennessee. And so my family has always had a commitment to working with children and youth, but also a commitment to issues of equity and justice. I learned a lot from my parents. And so 
having grown up in Memphis, Tennessee, which is a deeply um, segregated uh, city, um, having learned about the experiences through my parents of the, you know, desegregation of the public schools in Memphis, it's always been an interest um, and also a passion of mine. So I think those two things combined uh, sort of helped launch my interest in this particular project. I'm wondering if you could provide a, a brief overview uh, of, of school desegregation and how um, it was addressed in different parts of the country, particularly in California and the immediate community where where you studied. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll begin with the caveat. It's definitely not my area of expertise. I've certainly done some reading in the field, um, but I'm not a you know, not a, a school desegregation expert per se. Um, but as you probably know, um, uh, dating back many decades, we have a long history of segregated schools uh, in the United States. Um, once the Supreme Court uh, determined that it was unconstitutional um, for uh, uh, for um, uh, cities uh, and districts to have segregated schools, it launched uh, again a many decade. Uh, effort to desegregate the schools. Um, and that was highly contested, I think, as probably most of your listeners uh, know well. Um, a lot of schools, particularly in the South, but not only in the South, um, were rather reluctant to desegregate the schools. And that led to um, a set of uh, court battles that used the ruling uh, by the Supreme Court to help open up and desegregate the schools. And that played out in a variety of different ways in different contexts. Um, there's the long history, which I think is maybe well told and um, better understood of desegregation of schools uh, in the southern United States, but also the complicated history around busing in the Northeast, particularly around Boston. And then in a, a wide range of other communities where I think the stories aren't nearly as well told, including in some communities out here in California, where there also were um, court cases fought. Uh, based on uh, understood law at the time um, that made arguments that schools uh, either needed to be uh, integrated uh, or in the case of the Camford example and others like it, um, this particular case uh, involves uh, families from uh, one local public school that was very poorly resourced and poor performing uh, that was surrounded by a number of other school districts that were very well resourced, highly performing, and the the participants, uh, the families in the different communities were also uh, generally segregated um, by both class and race. And so families in one of these particular communities uh, brought a lawsuit against all of the other school districts, uh, the surrounding school districts, arguing that their children should have a right to access an education um, and a better resourced and better performing school um, and made the argument that they were being um, uh, denied access to a quality education on the basis of their race. So that's kind of the foundation of this particular case and in some ways is, a, is a, an apt descriptor of most of the um, uh, desegregation uh, legal cases that popped up around the country. Um, many of the cases were settled in court and so then you had um, uh, judicially ordered desegregation. Again, that's the more commonly understood experience in U.S. public schools uh, from the time that the Supreme Court determined that separate was not equal. 
Um, so you have a lot of kind of public record about that. What's a little less well studied because there are fewer examples of them are times when these cases were actually settled out of court. So the Camford example is one in which um, the plaintiffs and the uh, school districts, uh, after a long 10-year period of battling um, this out in the courts, uh, came to an agreed-upon settlement. Um, so essentially they agreed that they would take the case out of court as long as the parties agreed to the stipulations that they um, all negotiated together. That's what make this, makes this a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there were about a dozen other um, uh, programs across the country that uh, essentially are what are called voluntary desegregation programs um, that are the result of similar settlements uh, out of court. Would it be possible for you to also say a little bit more about how these uh, how these programs that were structured through out of court agreements um, differed, uh, or how they were the same as um, court mandated arrangements? Yeah. Well, some of what's different about it is um, just the kind of, again, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, so you might want to call a lawyer for some of the more fine-grained details, but the ways in which they then become implemented are rather different. And so um, once these parties agreed uh, to a particular set of arrangements, uh, then what's left is them for them to sort of follow suit on what it is that they agreed to do. So in the particular case of the Canfor program that I describe in this book, um, 10 school districts each agreed to accept a certain number of transfer students um, from East Bay City every year. So essentially they opened their doors to whether it was five or 60 uh, to that many applicants per year. Uh, They agreed to do some work to help promote um, the program so folks would know about it. Mm -hmm. uh, And they would make those slots available assuming somebody applied for it. Um, part of what was some of the fine grain details here, um, the receiving districts would only accept applicants in grades K through two. That was one of the arrangements that they made with the plaintiffs. So folks could apply for open spaces, uh, but only if their students were entering grades K through two. Um, the, the rationale there from the perspective of the receiving districts was that once they accepted a student, they were fully committed to that student for the duration of their education, and they wanted um, essentially a full run of opportunity to help prepare them to be successful up to and through high school and then on to college. And they felt it would be more difficult um, to help the, uh, the incoming students be successful if they took them later on because there would be, uh, in theory, such a gap in their educational preparation. And all the parties agreed to that. Um, in the court-mandated arrangements, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, they're um, significantly more complex. The court provides oversight um, into the, um, uh, the, the desegregation programs. The courts can, uh, can and did um, make decisions about um, uh, what would need to happen. Uh, they would decide whether or not busing would be the required action in order to desegregate the schools and so on. Uh, they were hotly contested and um, often, not always, uh, but often vigorously fought um, by families and communities. So we have a pretty messy history uh, with school desegregation in the U.S. And again, I can I can give you some kind of um, broad strokes around that. It's not a, uh, necessarily my area of greatest expertise, but I certainly can say that the you know the experience we had was radically imperfect. Um, and in a lot of ways, the imperfections that were um, part of that experience 
um, have made it much more difficult in current times um, uh, to build a more flourishing integrated system of schools. We have a pretty, uh, you know, we've actually um, uh, lost quite a bit of ground over the last couple of decades in terms of the degree to which our schools are Mm -hmm. um, integrated, uh, which is, uh, I think, significantly problematic uh, for our long-term goals of a flourishing, uh, democratic, uh, diverse society and diverse school system. Uh, the school districts who are receiving these students from, from other districts, uh, they, they provide transportation so that students can attend their schools. Um, can correct. you say a little bit more about what other sorts of measures they take with these students that uh, students living in neighborhood communities wouldn't necessarily benefit from or uh, partake in? Um, by and large, uh, and to generalize, I would say very little. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the arrangement that was made is essentially the, the receiving schools would open spaces. Um, uh, they did have to provide transportation. Um, and beyond that, really, there's very little that's kind of baked into the settlement. And um, I described this a bit in the book, but I think the the attitude and approach of the administrators at the receiving school district that I focused on in particular um, was essentially what what they're doing uh, kind of in concept is dr- extending the boundary, the geographic boundary lines of the school district to include uh, the home of the student who has applied and been accepted into the school district. So from the perspective of the administrators, all the sort of rights, responsibilities, and privileges of any of the students in the, in the actual school district extended now to these new students. Mm-hmm. Now, um, there's maybe benefits and drawbacks to that as an approach, but it meant there were no real specialized resources provided, nor really any specialized program. In fact, when I asked uh, one of the lead administrators about this, you know, what are the programs? They kind of the same question you asked me. What are the programs here in place for the students? Um, he very specifically said, this is not a program. Mm-hmm. Um, we have um, we have made an arrangement to accept essentially 60 new students. They're now students, just like all of the other mm-hmm. students, um, period, end of statement. Um, and, you know, one can make arguments that there's something valuable about seeing all the students the same, giving them the same kind of experience, providing them with the same resources and opportunities. Um, I think the the research that I did and and, uh, suggest that that's a little bit, that the situation is a little more complicated than that. And different students uh, very well may need different things. And so offering exactly the same things to students in radically different contexts is not necessarily ideal for setting them up for for long-term success. There are um, other parts of, of school that uh, these students aren't able to fully participate in because they have to travel so far to attend, um, because their experiences are so different from other kids in their classrooms. And there are uh, academic consequences of this as well as social consequences. And I, I was wondering if you could share a little bit about your experiences riding the bus in the morning to school and um, following these kids off the bus and into their classrooms. Um, so how do these things play out? Sure. Um, well, a lot of different things kind of at play there. I mean, as a starting point, I mean, the, you know, the, the book is called The Bus Kids, and all of the students uh, that I worked with, they, they rode the bus every day to school. And I think um, 
you know, part of the premise of your question is that, well, how significantly different are the experiences for Mm -hmm. these students and how does that play out in their educational experiences in school? And I think the bus is a useful and valuable starting point because it highlights the rather significant difference in the kind of lived experiences of these students that mm-hmm. impact the ways in which they can take advantages of the opportunities that school provided. So, um, first of all, some of it's just rather practical. Um, while the students lived rather close, uh, you know, as the crow flies from their school to their house, often no more than, say, five or six miles, um, many of them were riding the bus 40 minutes to an hour in order to get uh, to school. Um, so that, that extends their day. Um, I don't know about you, but, um, when I have to get up early in the morning, uh, either to get to work or to take my children to school, I'm often tired. Um, and if I had to extend the day, uh, by an hour, uh, that would mean I'd have to wake up an hour earlier. I'd have to get myself ready, um, at a time when I'm not very well rested. Uh, all of these things, of course, were true for the students, um, uh, that were participants in my study. They were getting up awfully early. School started at eight. So if they were getting on a bus and the bus pickup was at 7 or 7.15, that means they were getting up with their families um, typically by 6 or earlier than that, Um, families having to get them fed, dressed, out the door, um, and ready to be launched uh, out at a bus stop. So their workday, if you think of, you know, school as the work of children, you know, their workday started rather early in the morning. Uh, Trust me, none of them were getting up at 5.30 in the morning of their own volition. They were doing it because we required it in order for them to be able to attend school. Um, So that made a lot of the kids tired and hungry by the time they got to school. If they were getting up at 5.30 or 6 and eating a little breakfast, by the time they got to school and started at 8, they'd been working for two hours. Um, most of the teachers and administrators really weren't accounting for that fact. You know, kids who are five years old putting in a two-hour effort, and it certainly was an effort, um, before they even arrived at school, that implicates, you know, the kinds of the ways in which they're ready to approach, um, you know, the academic and social experiences they had in school. Um, beyond that, the, the bus rides itself were what well, certainly was eye-opening for me as an educator. I mean, I had been a teacher for quite some time. Um, as a young child, I rode a bus uh, to get to school, but only for a short period of time because, uh, and I don't remember it very vividly. I just remember my parents um, finding another way to getting me to get me to and from school. Um, but it was a really eye-opening experience for me, and one I would really encourage uh, any teacher who has the opportunity, any educator who has the opportunity, or policymaker for that matter. Um, if you haven't done so, get yourself on a bus ride with your students and see what they're experiencing. Um, it's part of our educational system. You know, we put it in place. Um, and again, students are required by law to get to and from school. If we make them do it on a bus, we really need to be attending to what that experience is like. Um, and to be, you know, sort of a little bit flip about it, what I found was a situation that's sort of, uh, you know, a Lord of the Flies-like. Um, there was one adult. Uh, that and you know somewhere between depending on which bus you took, uh, thirty to seventy-five youth. Um, the adult was responsible, had a very important responsibility to safely drive that bus where it needed to go. Um, in addition to that, somebody somehow, uh, in theory, should have been monitoring right the the health and safety of the children on the bus. Very difficult to attach that responsibility to the person who's actually driving the bus. Although in practice, that was part of his uh, or her responsibility. Um, as you can imagine, it's one you couldn't 
you couldn't focus on, um, you know, for too long if you wanted to be able to safely drive the bus. So there were lots of activities that uh, took place on the bus that I would say were not ideally suited for the health and safety, much less the education of the children. And, you know, I mean, much of this won't maybe come as a radical surprise that kids were misbehaving, uh, using um, problematic language, um, physically uh, interacting with one another. Sometimes fights, rarely um, too vigorous, uh, but certainly lots of, you know, putting of hands on one another, pushing, shoving, slapping, um, throwing things at one another, uh, verbally um, abusing or putting down each other. Um, there was some, you know, I would say not radically surprising behavior on the part of young people, um, but really problematic behavior on the part of young people. And again, all of this is orchestrated by school, you know, the school mm-hmm. system put this bus into action. They put the kids on it. They put the driver in it and they made it take an hour. Um, but there was almost no attention paid to that experience for the students when they were on the bus. Um, in and of itself, I think that's, um, you know, problematic and something that, you know, requires some addressing. Um, and then also its implications for how would one leave that bus and then experience school five seconds after you got off the bus. And that's, again, something that I kind of share more detail about in the book. Um, But both the ride and then the transition off of the bus and into school was something that most of the students that I followed had some challenges with. When we talk about students coming to school with different experiences, we're not talking about that in a general or big picture sense. I mean, we're talking just practically speaking um, to participate in this program, just to get to another town um, and go to school, it, it, you might be tired, you might be hungry, um, you mm-hmm. might have, uh, and you, you follow some kindergartners, and so the atmosphere that you're describing on the bus, um, I would think is, uh, could be very scary to someone who's five or six years old. It's certainly not like calm and stable, um, the way it might be if you're just walking to school or taking a short drive with your parents, like, uh, the classmates of some of these students. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I mean, it's one of the, I think, sort of first episodes that I highlight in the book is just the contrast between um, students who may be walking, uh, taking a five minute walk uh, from a home in the neighborhood uh, to a neighborhood school and one who's spending an hour riding rather independently as a five year old uh, in order to get to school. And not, all of that is not um, uh, necessarily to knock the notion uh, of transportation or busing per se. Um, it, but I do think that it's uh, worthwhile and important for us to recognize that all of the sort of pragmatic things we need to do in order to make schools work, and busing is one of them, um, we need to do it with some kind of time, thought, and attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the mo- most students in the United States who are riding a bus um, are actually students in rural schools, and they need to ride a bus because they're coming long distances to get to the one sort of a closest local school that they may be able to attend. And so, you know, I, I didn't have the, have not had the experience of um, exploring um, from a research perspective, the experience of those students, but we have a lot of students for whom busing is the only option. And so um, again, it's a, I think it's an area um, of one of many uh, that sort of underexplored uh, from the perspective uh, of what kinds of experiences are we organizing for youth in the name of education and how can we make them as productive and healthy um, as we possibly can for the people we're trying to serve. And, and that's, that, that's a, 
something that I take away from the book is that you, you seem to define schooling more broadly than uh, people who may not have thought about it as much as you have, right? And so if you have to ride a bus to get to school, that's part of school. And it should be given attention uh, in the same way uh, we, we're looking at what's happening inside of classrooms. We need to pay attention to how is lunch structured? What is recess like? What's happening in an after school program? Um, because these kids uh, aren't able to opt out of those things any more than they are uh, their classroom experiences. Yeah, I think that's right. I think um, I'm really one of my passions as an educator. One of the things I focus on is somebody um, who helps uh, to train future teachers is for us to think rather broadly about the endeavor of schooling. Um, teaching young people how to read and count is absolutely essential. Uh, we need to do it well. We need to do it well for a wide, uh, diverse range of students. But schooling is about more than learning how to read and count. Um, you know, very broadly speaking, we're, you know, we're tasked with preparing the next generation of citizens that ideally will help us build a flourishing, um, you know, uh, democratic and diverse society. So that means we have to care a lot about the ways uh, different people communicate with one another. We have to think about not only intellectual um, uh, creativity and vitality, but also, um, you know, the arts and physical education and health, um, all the things that will help us um, be the sort of most uh, productive, flourishing society we can imagine. And so then that means we also have to be attending to all of those things um, in the design of the educational experiences we offer for children. Uh, so that argues for a rather, you know, a rather broad curriculum for students. Um, but as you mentioned, it also means that we need to be attending to the wide range of venues that we're organizing in service of um, schooling for kids, many of which just don't get a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. um, you know, recess, um, it's a very important, I think, for students to have opportunities to be independent, uh, to try things out. So I'm, I wouldn't argue sort of for a, you know, super um, helicopter hovering orientation. At the same time, we need to think about what, what are the ways that we're orchestrating these experiences so that the widest range of kids can be successful. Um, and I've certainly been at plenty of schools, you probably have too, where we sort of let loose uh, 600 young people on a, on a, you know, a wide blacktop, and you might have one or two moderately trained adults who are there to sort of scoop up the broken limbs and, uh, you know, bandage over the cuts. Uh, I'm not sure that's the most ideal way um, to organize kind of flourishing experiences um, with the outdoors. As much as I love uh, having children, you know, giving them the opportunity to experience the outdoors, make mistakes, um, have accidents, all those things are important um, uh, for a healthy life. But you also want to take advantage of the learning moments um, that are embedded in those kinds of opportunities. And I think, you know, whether it's recess or lunchtime or the transitions uh, between before and after school, um, I think we often neglect those because they're not they're not orchestrated in the rectangle of the classroom space where the teacher's responsibility is more direct and clear. Um, and I think we'd serve our kids better if we spent a little bit more time thinking about uh, what the educational affordances are of those other spaces. Um, and it's one of the things, as you can tell, that I get uh, rather jazzed about. I just I think there's lots of opportunity there uh, for building kind of productive, healthy citizens if we would take advantage of it. Why aren't we talking more about recess and, and buses and things like that? Um, Good question. I'll give you. Uh, I'll give you some hunches. Um, I think. Well, for, as well as I can say, 
there are places that are tending to these spaces. So there are there are schools and districts that are thinking about how to make bus rides more educative, how to make recess uh, kind of more um, of a learning opportunity, um, as opposed to solely a break, both for mm-hmm. um, children and teachers. And breaks are important. Um, so I, you know, there is some good news there, and I can share uh, some of the you know some of the strategies folks are using in both of those venues. Why they're ignored? Again, I, I think. Um, I think they're ignored be, uh, in large measure because they're seen as kind of instrumental, kind of pragmatic necessities in mm-hmm. order to do what most folks think of as the real work of schools, which is the teaching, uh, and I say this, you know, overly simplistically, but the teaching of reading and counting to youth. Uh, and that happens in the rectangle of the classroom where we put a lot of children and typically one adult. And so anything that's not that, um, is just sort of the tape and the glue that holds it all together, right? So the bus is only there because we need to get the kids to school. School is the part where the teacher's in the classroom with the children. Uh, what I'm making an argument for is that everything we're organizing, you know, if we're talking about public schools, using uh, taxpayer dollars uh, for the benefit of the larger society and particularly the children and families that are served by that school, from my perspective, all of that is school. And so we need to just we need to be thinking more deeply. Um, it's a really more of an orientation question. You know, what do we consider to be school? If you only consider to be school what happens within those four walls, you're not going to attend to any of the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I'm arguing in this book and more broadly is that all of the rest of it matters. It actually matters for what happens in those classroom walls. And maybe that's the most uh, simple way to, um, you know, to push for it. But it it also matters for the lived experiences of those individuals and it matters for the outcomes we can get. And so I do think that we, we need to shift our mindset a little bit about what counts for school. Um, so that's one, that's one piece of it in terms of why it's um, I think getting a little bit short shrift. Um, there are some places and spaces that are looking more carefully and organizing programs that I think um, offer a lot of promise. So when it comes to busing, there are some folks who've taken a careful look at it. There are some things that are rather simple, um, although they all come with a cost. You know, having two adults on a bus costs, you know, roughly speaking, twice as much as one adult on a bus. Right. Um, so it's an investment, but it's an investment that I think can pay some pretty healthy dividends. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, a fully trained, experienced teacher in order to provide at least a minimum of some additional health and safety. Um, right. So there's a little less chaos um, and a little more comfort and care. Um, I think that's what most people would want for their own children um, if they could get it. So that to me, that's a rather you know minimal investment that would pay some significant dividends um, with or without another adult on the bus. Um, there are places that have thought about a range of educational programs um, one could provide. There are some busing systems that use educational videos and the like. Um, you can, you know, argue and debate about whether that's good for the benefit of the children, but it, it, it does have potentially some educative value and um, at the very least may make it a, a, a calmer and safer experience for those involved. Um, if some eyeballs are glued to a screen, um, we can have a different debate on a different day about whether that's the most flourishing experience. Um, uh, one of the, uh, a- after working with one of the schools, after having written the book, um, one of the teachers worked with some folks to organize essentially a bus library um, and gathered um, books that they thought would be appropriate for the children who were on the bus. And so 
they provided some educational resources. Um, and, you know, that can be puzzles, games, books, Sudoku, um, something for children to do that has some kind of utility, uh, purposefulness, engagement um, that might be a bit healthier than, um, you know, uh, throwing oranges across a bus and waiting for them to hit somebody in the head. Right. So there are, you know, so there are, there are some things that uh, folks um, have invested in and have tried. And the same is true. You know, there are a range now, a range of uh, programs designed for uh, the play yard. Uh, some of them are rather um, kind of formal, uh, tied to uh, nonprofits. Um, there's groups like Playworks that come and essentially uh uh, organize games and activities, but also teach play skills on the play yard um, and in the classroom to then take back to the play yard. Um, there are some schools who've organized things like uh, intramural programs that take place at recess. So it's just a more robust, flourishing set of opportunities as opposed to just sort of dumping all the children out of the classrooms so everybody can kind of get out of their seat for a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there are models out there, and I think a lot of them have uh, been proven to be rather successful. Um, but it takes some creativity. Sometimes it takes resources. Um, and so as with everything, there's typically trade-offs. So you have to think about you know, whether the investments are worth the payoffs. But um, I think that there's a lot to be said for that, um, for investing in those kinds of ways. I'm also interested in your personal experiences observing these these moments in school. Um, there are many times in the book where you are with the kids and there's no other adult around and students seem to be going through a hard time. And yeah. um, as, as an adult who cares about children and also someone with many years of teaching experience, how did you strike the balance between just observing what was happening so that you could recount it in, in detail um, and also intervening when when you felt it was appropriate. Yeah, um, it's a really good question. Um, a question from somebody who's also uh, clearly somebody who cares a lot about um, children and have an educational orientation yourself. I would say this is one of the most difficult parts about um, uh, this research endeavor, and you know uh, other other efforts that I've taken uh, where I'm um, essentially an observer right, a scholar or researcher in somebody else's uh, classroom. Um, There's not an easy answer to your question, but I can say there's some baseline uh, things that were rather clear to me. So when the immediate health and safety of a a child was involved, I I had the responsibility, um, you know, legally and ethically uh, to intervene. And so um, if one child was, uh, you know, about to hit another child with a swing, Uh, a heavy tire swing, uh, which happened in one of the classrooms that I was observing, Uh, whether it's inadvertent or purposeful, you know, my responsibility was to protect the health and safety of another child. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that, that demarcation is rather clear. Um, But there are other instances that are, you know, much more murky and difficult. Um, It is true. I was not the educator of the children there. And I tried to make that clear to them and to their teachers. That said, from the perspective of a five-year-old, I'm just another grown-up. Right. Um, and so to abandon them in a time of need um, would have been rather problematic. Um, how to strike that balance, I mean, was uh, honestly delicate and something I gave a lot of thought and um, regular reflection to and relied on. Um, at the time, I was a graduate student and also relied on uh, my mentors to give me guidance and advice. Um, but, 
there's a range of things that I tried to do to help ameliorate certain things. So as an example, when riding on the bus, I mean, one of the things that happened, um, partly just sort of a natural outgrowth of the experiences on the bus, and partly this was the oversight by the driver, but the younger students tended to sit at the front of the bus closer to the driver. And that happened before I got on the bus. That was just sort of, and the older students sat in the back. So to the degree that there was kind of chaos and a free-for-all, there was more of that happening in the back of the bus and less of it happening in the front of the bus. Um, I tended to sit in the middle of the bus, partly so I could observe uh, both, you know, what was happening at the front and part of what was happening in the back. And to be honest, part of it was because I knew just my physical presence was going to make the experience uh, at least moderately safer for the students in the bus because in order for me to be there, um, I did feel that sense of responsibility uh, to make sure that, you know, there was some degree um, of general health and safety. Um, uh, I did try not to intervene overly much um, it, with the behaviors and uh, actions of the students because that really wasn't my role. Um, it would have been difficult for me, one, to conduct my work um, as a researcher if my role turned into being the moderator. Um, at the same time, I did feel the need to make sure that um, I wasn't um, I wasn't present and therefore essentially um, uh, a passive participant, um, right, in the physical, significant physical or verbal abuse mm. of us. Um, because I have, again, an ethical, if not a legal responsibility to monitor against that. So what that likely meant is some of what um, happened on the bus when I wasn't there was probably significantly worse than what was present when I was there. Because I, I, I did, I was a, um, a uh, I don't know how to, you know, a responsible adult at some level uh, in that space. And that's actually probably the space where I would say I exerted myself the most um, across all the different venues that I uh, spent time just because I think there were some rather clear kind of you know, moral, ethical obligations to the students in that particular space. Um, whether that meant having students who were trying to surf uh, the aisles while they're riding the bus and, you know, kind of giving them a look and telling them to sit down um, uh, or encouraging a particular student who was having a rough time to come sit next to me on the bus um, so that they could get a little bit of uh, comfort and security. Um, I, I think my role was more proactive in that sense than it was in other spaces. But all that said, you know, my, my role, as I described it in the book, too, I, you know, I was a participant observer. I wasn't just an observer. And one of the things, um, one of my uh, most beloved um, mentors, Elliot Eisner, shared with me early on when I was designing this project, and I said, oh, well, you know, I'm just going to be a fly on the wall in these classrooms. And he said, well, uh, you're not a fly, and you can't sit on the wall. So we can we can forget about that as an orientation. You're also uh, a living, breathing human being in the mm -hmm. presence of five-year-olds, and they're not going to pretend like you're not there. Um, they know better. And so you need to think carefully about, you know, who your participants are and what they need and how they think. And he knew I knew enough about, you know, children and youth to realize that that was just silly. You, you can't be in a classroom with five-year-olds and not have them come ask you what you're doing or ask you for some help. Um, and so, you know, my role wasn't um, like a silent observer. I was a participant observer, which meant um, by design, I was engaging with the students. Um, I would help them with activities. Sometimes I even, you know, might work at a center at the request of, a, of one of the teachers. 
Um, but they were aware, and I worked to explain to the students that part of my job while I was there was to learn about the classrooms in which they were working. And so I always had a notebook and I would write things down in it and they knew that that's what I was doing. But the, that set of dilemmas was something I struggled with and learned a lot from, uh, in doing this particular project. Um, it's actually probably one of the things that stuck with me the longest from this work is kind of just thinking through those very complicated um, dilemmas about how to be um, an effective scholar when the focus of your work are um, young children who um, who deserve and need uh, careful attention and protection um, wherever you know wherever I might be working with them. One thing we haven't talked about yet is that uh, these these buses would often arrive at school late, and yep. there'd be no one to greet the students um, as they uh, um, get off the bus. Uh, yep. And maybe they walk themselves to class and mm-hmm. um, they'll enter a classroom in which um, things are often running. I was wondering if you'd right. say a little bit more about um, these students' morning experiences in the classroom. Sure. Well, I think um, uh, I think the, the transition was rather uh, sharp mm-hmm. um, and unsettling for many of the students. I mean, there was variability in terms of how well the students that I – um, uh, followed how well they adapted. But I think for a lot of them, it was rather sharp uh, and unsettling. So um, the bus experience, which we've been kind of talking a lot about, as you, you know, as we noted, is kind of um, jarring, rambunctious, a little uh, wild, hectic. The language that's appropriate to use on the bus, if you wanted to survive on the bus, you had to use some language that's rather salty. Um, you know, those were expected. You're, you know, it's reasonable and maybe even expected to sort of be touching, uh, your peers and your partners. Uh, you don't take turns. I mean, all of these behaviors are sort of, that's the culture on the bus. Um, within about 60 seconds after the students got off the bus, they, they arrived in a place that had wildly different expectations. And so switching gears as a five-year-old that quickly is really challenging. And it tripped up a lot of the students. You know, they brought that bus energy with them into the classroom. And as you noted, for some of them, they would then arrive late. And for many of the teachers that I was in the classrooms I was observing, they may come into sort of a rug time or circle time with a kindergarten teacher where, you know, the teachers mostly holding forth and uh, students would, um, you know, maybe one one at a time be sharing an idea or some notes or uh, news or commenting on a story. Um, that is just radically different than the expectations these students who were on the bus had just, you know, a minute ago. And so then what they found is within, you know, just a couple of minutes of arriving to school, they're disrupting everything, either by coming in late and often sort of, um, uh, oh, jumbled and, you know, tripping over things and making noise while they're putting their stuff away. So they're a disruption. Um, and then they would often be called out for this disruption. So mm-hmm. sort of their first experience early in the day was, you know, you're out of place. You kind of don't belong. You're not following what's expected of you here. Um, and that, of course, then was signal to all the student, other students who were in the room, you know, oh, here's somebody who doesn't fit in. Um, and these are students who, you know, by the design of the of the settlement case, they're by design students who don't fit in. These are, um, you know, uh, students whose background sets them apart from those from the local school community. And so this was just 
um, one of many ways that the students were sort of set up to be outsiders in a place that um, the program was hoping to make them more insiders. And that early morning transition was really difficult for a lot of the children. Um, and honestly, you know, sort of a hard thing to be an observer of um, over the course of two years. You describe some kids as being at the center of certain activities, whether mm-hmm. that's on the carpet. And these are the kids who are kind of responding to the story that a teacher is sharing. Or it could also be in the sandbox and involve who gets to hold certain tools or who gets to play certain roles in an imaginative game. And uh, you say that these, these kids who are the bus kids are often peripheral players. Um, can you describe their experiences with their peers a bit more for us? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, that, that model comes from sort of uh, the work of folks who um, studied apprenticeships and kind of what um, what they describe, uh, which I think is a, uh, offers some really lovely connections for us as educators, um, is, you know, in an apprenticeship orientation, what you're trying to do is take folks who are sort of outside of a particular enterprise or a community. You know, let's say it's, um, uh, I don't know, if you're working on apprenticing a blacksmith, you know, you would take somebody who knows very little about this kind of skilled professional endeavor. They don't know the cultural practices. They don't know the actual skills. Um, and so they're, they're um, and then you're trying to bring them into the center of that world. And so over time, you would come from being, a, you know, somebody who's working on the periphery you know very little, but you're sort of dabbling towards somebody who's right at the center, who's at the heart of the enterprise. And so what I found for the Canford students is that they were, they certainly, as you would imagine, they come in on the periphery. They don't really know how this place works. They don't know the unwritten and written codes and rules and expectations. They don't know what language people use to get involved in a game. How, how do I join with there's a group of kids who are uh, building a sandcastle in the sandbox what's the right way to join in i mean there is a cultural practice there that's known to some and not known to others and for some of the kids they would sort that out over time but for a lot of the canford students in particular they had a very difficult time sort of cracking that code and bringing themselves into the center there was no explicit teaching of those things um, and the, their prior experience and their uh, connectedness was rather weak. And so they would just constantly find themselves kind of knocking at this, um, you know, at this door, but regularly being rebuffed. Um, and that was a, a significant challenge for them. And again, one that I think was rather unattended to by most of the educators in the circumstances, because a lot of that work around building social friendships and engagements would happen outside of the classroom walls. Well, this was kindergarten, so there was some kind of playtime and free time in most of the classrooms that I worked with. A lot of the social time was happening outside. Um, and the kids were, you know, working hard to try to figure out how do we get into that center um, but they more stayed on the outside as peripheral players. Um, and that persisted uh, for most of the students, not for all of them, but for most of them during the duration of my study. What do you know about the academic success of students participating in the Canford program? Um, so that wasn't the focus of my study per se. What I wanted to do was to look really closely at the lived experience of the youngest mm-hmm. students 
um, in this program. So that's what I can speak to most clearly. Um, I did look uh, and work with folks at the district level um, to try to get a snapshot of what the long-term academic outcomes would be for participants in this program. And what I found at the time um, was that uh, by and large, to the degree that they measured uh, these things and could do it in a way that was comparable, and there's a lot of complications involved, but I think very loosely what one could say is that their, um, their academic outcomes um, uh, likely exceeded those of the students they left behind in the district that they left um, and underperformed uh, by some significant measure um, their sort of community uh, peers um, in their in the, in Arbor Town, and so is that a you know? And then of course the next question is that good, bad, or otherwise? And um, you know, my answer to most questions is complicated, but I think I do think that there's um, some reasonable evidence both here, but also in some other uh, studies, uh, longer term studies of long term outcomes of desegregation programs. That there are some uh, clear benefits um, academically. There are some studies that have looked at employment opportunities. There are some other studies that have looked at the degrees to which folks are comfortable in diverse settings, all of which mm. have been attributed to outcomes of desegregation programs. And so I think there likely are uh, these kinds of long-term benefits. Um, I certainly hope so. Um, you know, I'm a, I, I remain a proponent of uh, school integ integration programs. I like to use integration rather than desegregation because mm -hmm. I think we focus almost solely on the desegregation part, less so on the integration part. But I think productive integration programs you know, can and do lead to productive long-term outcomes. I think what I was interested in when I learned a lot about doing this study is that there are a lot of um, uh, underexplored and underattended um, uh, tertiary uh, um, uh, outcomes that that are really meaningful um, from the perspective of the students who are participating. And, and the more we think about those and explore them, the better able we'll be as educators to attend to them in ways that make this a more healthy, promising, and productive um, experience for all involved. And so that's part of what was kind of intriguing to me in doing the, the work and um, some of what I learned from spending time with these fabulous uh, children. I guess I have a two-part question. Um, one is more short-term and has to do with families, and one's longer-term and has to do with schools and, and districts. Um, first, uh, taking the program as it is now, um, what kinds of advice would you give to individual families considering uh, whether or not they should have their child participate in the program? We've kind of talked about some possible benefits as well as some drawbacks. Uh, how would you have them consider that? And then uh, the second part of my question is, um, assuming we want to keep this program, um, how could we improve it? What sorts of policy recommendations would you um, offer to schools and districts in this program or uh, in with similar programs? Yeah. Um, well, let's see. First, in terms of working with families, I mean, one of the things that I think is really important for me as an educator and working with families is um, uh, to – uh, not be overly presumptuous about what I know relative to what families know. There's nobody who knows, you know, somebody's child better than that child's parents or guardian um, and knows what's best 
for, you know, a child than that child's parent or guardian. So um, with an orientation to kind of working kind of collegially and collaboratively um, with families, there are some things that I, I might encourage folks to consider when trying to make a decision about whether to, um, you know, participate in a program like this. And I think first and foremost, what I would offer is um, uh, an encouragement to kind of think beyond the first, the first order question. So what I found when I worked, because I did a, I had a lot of interviews with families um, who were participants. What I found is that the first order question was really uh, thoughtfully considered, which is essentially, I want to send my my child to the best school I can send them to, and. The local school, from what I understand, is not very good, and this other school is much better from what I understand. So I, it seems reasonable to me to leave you know, the school that's worse and go to the school that's better. Um, and I can't make any argument um, uh, about that kind of decision-making calculus. Um, and I think parents were rather thoughtful and you know, did their homework and talked to friends and read the newspaper and, you know, so... That they they were informed decision makers, um, and I think you know they had a good orientation to what they wanted for their children. What I would encourage them maybe to to, to do then is so okay that that's reasonable. Now ask the next layer of question, which I found often wasn't happening. So, if you want to take full advantage of this new opportunity, what are the things that you might need to do? And I think by doing that, what they might uncover is a little more um, deeply is what are some of the challenges that they would face, that their children would face, and that might lead them then to ask further questions of the receiving district and their teachers. So I think because they felt in a lot of ways, I mean, they had won the lottery. I mean, this was, this was a competitive program, so more people applied than got in. I think they felt in some ways, rightfully so. I won the lottery. I give, I'm going to give my child a better opportunity. Um, it made them less inclined to ask the next layer of questions, which is, so what are the, you know, what are the trade-offs? What are the things that are going to be difficult? And, you know, in that way, they could advocate in ways that might help uh, the school district, um, you know, provide more and, th- you know, and the bus ride again comes as an easy example. So, uh, it's not as though the parents weren't aware that the bus ride was tough for their kids. I mean, they were well aware of this. These are, you know, thoughtful, smart people. Um, their kids had no problem relaying some of the challenges. But I think that just the parents just took it as sort of part of the cost of doing business, mm. right? So, you know, the receiving district was, you know, they opened 60 slots. I somehow got lucky enough to get one of them, and I'm not going to make any waves. Um, I think they had no no real sense about whether there were any trade-offs right, to raising some questions or concerns there. And again, I'm overgeneralizing because there certainly were families, uh, parents who were more regular advocates around some of these issues for their kids. But by and large, it was more of a, you know, we, we won something, we're delighted with that. And of course, life is busy, um, complex for everybody, and, and certainly including these uh, families. And so they just sort of bore the brunt of these costs individually. But I think if they were provided a little bit more opportunity to work collectively, to think about what some of these challenges were, they may have been able to galvanize and organize um, and support improving the experiences for their children in ways that I just think weren't um, 
uh, again, were sort of under underexplored, um, you know, this is on the part of families and on the part of educators because it's just kind of perceived as part of the way you have to do school. Um, so that's one of the things I might, you know, advise families to do. I guess the other, and this relates to is um, the degree to which, you know, the schools didn't provide a, um, a lot of good venues for the families of these students who actually came from the same community um, to sort of get together, right, and share their own experiences and think about what it is that they needed. It was more of an individualized, and it sort of reflected the school's approach, right, which is that the district circled their home and brought it into the school district, rather than saying we're sort of circling the community, right, or we're treating it as a program, um, all of which I think might have brought more kind of collective orientation and action to the plate. Now, the district might have done that at some level purposefully because maybe they didn't want 60 families getting together and telling them we want you to hire two more people to get on the bus. Um, so, you know, that's the, um, you know, the, uh, maybe the more pessimistic view. Um but I think the families would have been well served by having more of a collective orientation. And again, maybe um, uh, having the opportunity to explore kind of a second layer of questions about what the experience entails. Um, but again, I say all that with a, you know, a very heavy caveat that, you know, it's easy for me as a researcher who's kind of sitting on a perch to, um, try to think about what might be best for others, but nobody knows what's best for themselves and their, and their children, uh, you know, than those parents and their families. And, um, you know, discretionary time is at a premium uh, for everyone, um, including families, uh, you know, working hard to make ends meet and provide uh, for their children. And I think there's some real um, appropriate truth to the orientation of the families to say, well, look, you know, I, I did my homework and I found this uh, rare opportunity for my child, um, and I'm pretty happy about that, um, and they're going to get some advantages of it, and, yeah, it might come with some costs, and that so be it. And I, I can't make any arguments with that. What about your advice for uh, schools and districts? Yeah, so um, – you know, I, I think sort of in the, you know, conclusions that I draw in the book, some of them we've kind of talked uh, talked upon. I think, um, you know, broadly speaking, one of the things that I focus on is just expanding our view of what schooling is about. Um, I think I think that that would um, that would get us into conversations and work in a lot of these different terrains that we've kind of been uh, poking and around and discussing. Um you know, if I uh, someday, you know, uh, woke up and were, you know, superintendent of, a, you know, a school or a district like this, um, I, I would encourage our community to think rather differently about an orientation to this particular endeavor, whether or not there was a legal obligation to provide a differentiated experience with these students. I think there's a moral and ethical and an educational one. Um, I think we know enough about quality um, teaching and learning to know that different children have different needs um, and therefore different instructional and educational approaches. And so if you have children who are riding a bus for an hour and other children who are taking a walk for five minutes, they may need different things when they first arrive at school. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the same way, you know, we know well that children who, you know, are learning English as 
uh, their home language, um, bring different resources and challenges to schools and children who are learning English as a second or a third language. And so I think it's, um, I mean, to be blunt about it, I think it's somewhat um, naive um, at best to suggest that we're going to provide the same thing to everybody and then expect the same outcomes. Um, you know, that's kind of an equality, equity um, mm-hmm. orientation. And I, I, I think most educators are kind of um, sophisticated enough to know that, you know, equality of opportunity does not lead to equality of outcomes. You need an equity um, orientation to opportunity. Um, and so uh, that's something that I think is rather missing from the approach to the implementation of this effort. I don't think it's, um, I think it meets the letter of the law, but maybe not the spirit. Um, and so th- that would be, you know, in a very broad term, something that I, I would encourage. I was wondering, could you tell me a little bit about the response uh, from the district to this book being published? Um, th- did you hear anything from uh, people in that community? Has anything changed with the program in the time since it's been published? Um, I uh, I heard and engaged with um, the community in a couple of different ways. So um, there were a few schools that invited me to come share a little bit about the research and have talked with the staff and faculty at the school. Um, there was, uh, at around the time that the book was published, there was a kind of diversity-focused um, committee at the district level that included uh, teachers and um, uh, district officials that they were particularly interested in the work and um, were kind enough to invite me again to sort of um, share a little bit about what I did and what I learned. Um, you know, you'd have to find them and ask whether or not they found it useful, effective. Um, uh, you know, I certainly received some very kind and thoughtful feedback on the efforts. Um, I don't think that there's been any kind of uh, radical shift in the orientation of the implementing districts about how they do their work, and I don't know that I was expecting uh, mm-hmm. any such thing. Um, but I think that there are folks who are um, committed and interested uh, in serving this particular pop- population of students to the best of their ability, um, and I hope at least some of them have found some value in the work that I've provided to help um, support their efforts. Oh, definitely. I mean, I, I don't run a school district, but I, I teach in a classroom where, uh, you know, I work with students of, of, with all different kinds of experiences, and I've found it uh, valuable for my practice. Well, it's so. really nice to hear. Uh, Ira, we've we've taken up a lot of your time, and so I just wanted to ask you one more question, and sure. that is, um, what are you working on now, and how can our listeners follow your work? Um, yeah, thanks uh, for asking. My most um, kind of recent um, uh, research endeavor was uh, working with a close colleague of mine, Linda Darling-Hammond, and we spent um, the last three years actually um, taking a close look at um, – the, the outcomes of a, a program of teacher preparation based out of New York, Bank Street College, where I worked at several years back. And we looked, uh, took a multi-pronged, multifaceted approach to um, trying to understand the impact of that program of teacher preparation on the graduates of the institution and on their uh, students. So um, we uh, did some extensive surveys. We um, uh, tried to do some estimates of the 
uh, teacher's influence on pupil learning gains. And my favorite part of the project was I got to spend a lot of time in the schools and classrooms of the graduates doing some close observations and case studies of their actual practice. Um, all of that um, uh, resulted in uh, a series of uh, research papers that are going to be published actually sometime this month um, uh, through SCOPE, which is a research center here at the Graduate School of Education at Stanford. So um, uh, edpolicy.stanford.edu is the website of SCOPE, and those uh, research papers should be published um, probably any day now. I don't actually have an exact date, but it's coming soon. Uh, I'm also um, uh, planning this coming year to um, synthesize all of that work and organize it into um, a book manuscript. So, you know, if uh, all goes well, maybe in another year and a half or so, there will uh, be a book published uh, from that work, which I'm excited about. Those both sound like great projects, and I would love to have you back again to discuss uh, another book. So, oh, yeah, that'd be a lot of fun. I look forward to it. Ira, it's been great having you on the show today. Um, I really enjoyed it, and I hope you take care. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Trevor. 